member of the Asa Collective Women's Podcasting Network. Ghost stories are always scarier when they're told by the very people who experience them. Hi, I'm Becky. And I'm Diana. And we're the hosts of the Homespun Haints podcast. We talk to people just like you who've come face to face with ghosts, demons, haints, and other strange paranormal phenomena. All of it makes for a chilling good time. So grab yourself a sweet tea, turn off the lights, and listen to some eerie, true ghost stories on Homespun Haints wherever you get your podcasts. I'm not scared. Are you? History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 354th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Uh, the heck? <laughs> you know what we're going to be talking about on this episode, Kelly? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> Screaming Skulls. The legend of Screaming Skulls, as a matter of fact. And it's pretty perfect because I know people listen to our episodes at all different times of the year and things of that nature. But as this show drops, it is the 1st of October. So we are in the month of Halloween. Oh my gosh, I'm so looking forward to this. And even though COVID is going to be clamping down on some of the plans, we still plan to have a great time. We got a lot of our decorations up already. It's definitely our most favorite time. Before we get into sharing about these screaming skulls, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Nicole, Roberta, Aaron with an E, Danielle, Joy, Tawny, who spells her name T-A-U-N-N-Y, Karen, Leah, Amy, Holly, Michelle, I believe is how this is said. It's M-E-S-H-E-L. Nick, Michael, Danica, Rise, and Morgan Skillington. Hey, Morgan. Welcome to the Spooktacular <laughs> crew, our little artist friend. So happy to have you guys join us. Thanks for joining the crew. And now this moment, Naughty. The moment in oddity was suggested by Mindy Hole. Julianne Kupka is a German-Peruvian mammologist, but that is not why she is famous. She is famous for being the sole survivor of the crash of Lanza Flight 508. Her parents were animal people, too, and had worked to establish a research station in the Amazon rainforest. She would learn survival techniques in that jungle that would serve her well. On Christmas Eve of 1971, Julianne and her mother Maria were aboard that Lance of Flight when it was struck by lightning and broke up in the air. Julianne remained strapped in her seat as it fell for two miles, landing in such a way that she lived. She had a broken collarbone, a couple of gashes, and a swollen eye. 
She collected sweets from the crash site and made her way down a river because her father had taught her that this would lead to civilization. After 10 days of traveling, she found a boat next to a small shelter and stayed there just long enough for some fishermen to find her. They brought her to their village and a local pilot flew her to town where there was a hospital and she was reunited with her father. After recovering, she led searchers to the crash site. Julianne said, I had nightmares for a long time, for years, and of course the grief about my mother's death and that of the other people came back again and again. The thought, why was I the only survivor, haunts me. It always will. Being the sole survivor of an airplane crash and then managing to survive for 10 days in the jungle is nothing short of a miracle. And that certainly is odd. And we just want to throw in on the tail end there. Fun fact, Kelly, Julianne's specialty in mammalogy was bats. Awesome. I love that. Well, we know our spooky crew loves our bats. So I thought that was really cool. Most definitely. Pull the covers up tight. That chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. <laughs> and now this month in history. month of October, on the 1st in 1910, a bomb explodes in the Los Angeles Times building. This would be dubbed the crime of the century by the Times. The Los Angeles Times publisher at the time was Harrison Otis, and he was an opponent of unions. The paper had printed numerous editorials against unions. Otis had no doubt that the Times had been targeted by union members. He hired the nation's premier private detective, William J. Burns, to figure out who set off the bomb that led to a fire that killed 21 people and injured another 100. Burns figured out that the Bridge and Structural Iron Workers Union was connected to the attack, and he zeroed in on John J. McNamara, who was the treasurer. He also figured out that his brother James was involved. He arrested the McNamaras and brought them to California from Indiana, where they had run. Union members raised a legal fund and hired Clarence Darrow for $50,000. James admitted that he set off the explosion, he was sentenced to life in prison. John was sentenced to 15 years for bombing another location. Dynamiting locations was actually a tactic that the iron workers used for many years starting in 1906. They bombed 110 ironworks. This would be known as the largest domestic terrorism campaign in American history. Creepy people like us love skulls. Many of us include them in our home decor. The Bone Daddy, Jack Skellington, is one of our favorite characters. Skulls are pretty special. Screaming skulls are supposed to be even more special. And while many people have relegated these craniums to legend and lore, there are several that are believed to have really existed and may still be around. Perhaps even a few still have their spirits connected to them. Join us as we share the legend of Screaming Skulls. The human skull is an amazing structure, and it needs to be, because it protects the most precious part of who we are, the brain. 
protecting the brain is very important for two reasons. First, the brain is the engine or mainframe of our body, and without it, we cannot live. And secondly, our soul or conscience or personality, whatever you want to call it, is housed in our brain. We are not the only ones to consider the skull the seat of the soul. Scholars have long contemplated such a thing. When the brain ceases to function, modern medicine declares us brain dead. In that state, there really is no point in going on. The skull is well suited for the job of protection. The average human skull, Kelly, can withstand 520 pounds of force before the bone gives. Oh my word. That makes the skull stronger than steel and concrete of the same mass. That's incredible. I had no idea. I didn't know that it was that strong either. So when you think about these people who die from blunt force trauma, how hard must they be getting hit with something? Right. A heavy object is needed to crush a skull and it needs to be traveling at a high velocity. That is some pretty good protection for the brain. And then you think about all the horror movies where you see somebody's head pop like a watermelon. (laughs) Yeah, they make it look so easy. It's just like, boop, oh, I just smashed their head, especially when they're zombies. Oh, yeah, totally. I guess they're already a little mushy. Ew. The skull manages to survive death when given the chance. Cultures for hundreds of years have revered the skull and many decorated them or used them as decorative elements. Our culture in this house sure does. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. Bone churches are found throughout Europe. These churches include the Capuchin Crypt in Rome, the Hallstatt Karner in Austria, the Medieval Ossuary in Spain, St. Macon's Church in Ireland, the Capuchin Catacombs, and San Bernardino Aleosa in Italy, the Capella dos Osos in Portugal, and the Sedlik Ossuary in the Czech Republic. That one's my absolute favorite. Have you ever seen pictures from that? I've seen various pictures. I don't know if it was that particular location. I'll have to show them to you. That's, it's so cool inside, the way they have it decorated. Their interiors include wall art made of bones and piles of decorated skulls. And we have featured the catacombs of Paris in an episode with its walls of skulls. It is not only in reality that skulls hold a certain prestige. Folklore has elevated some of these brain holders to a supernatural level. There are those that are considered guardian skulls, which are said to bring luck to a household or family. They are more widely known as screaming skulls. There are many rules that must be followed when it comes to the tradition surrounding these skulls. The skull was to be kept in an area of a house that was considered important, like a niche near the hearth, on a prominent windowsill, or a shelf on the wall. Once the skull had a resting place, it was not to be moved, and it especially was not to be taken out of the house. Disturbing a screaming skull could spark paranormal activity, much of which could be poltergeist-like. Antiquarians first started writing about screaming skulls in the 17th century. Many of these accounts were inaccurate with their core revelations being that these skulls provided some sort of magical protection for a family. Later stories would focus more on vengeful spirits coming back after a violent death. This trauma caused their spirits to be tied to a place, and hence this would be why they would be upset if their skull was to be removed. While many of these stories are just ghost lore, the existence of these skulls is very real in many cases. It's believed that there were 32 of these English guardian skulls, with many of them going missing over time. Seven of these skulls were walled up in their particular locations, and ten are still out on display. Let's take a look at some of these screaming skulls. So we're not supposed to touch them or move them, but can you dust them? Well, I suppose it'd be okay to dust them and make sure that they stay clean. Right, that was the first thing that entered my head when you (laughs) read that. (laughs) Just don't jostle it too much. Okay. I think the problem is people would get tired of having them in the house. So they would just take them outside or they would feel like they needed to have some kind of a Christian burial. And so they would take them and bury them and 
then trouble would ensue, as we're about to find out. It did not bode well for them. No. If you see a skull somewhere, just leave it alone anyway. Probably if it's out in the woods, Maybe you should call, call the cops. The cops. <laughs> First, we have the Pack Horse Inn. One place where a skull is still on display today is the Pack Horse Inn. The Pack Horse Inn is a white building with a black roof found in the town of Affetside in England. This pub had been around since 1442 and has garnered some fame for its cursed screaming skull. The skull is believed to have belonged to a man named George Whowell. Whowell was supposedly the executioner of the 7th Earl of Derby named James Stanley. This was revenge for the murder of his wife and child during the Bolton Massacre. As to how George died, no one knows, but his skull has been located in plain sight behind the bar since the late 1800s. The legend behind the skull claims that if the skull is moved, you will be visited by an axe-wielding spirit carrying an executioner's axe. Yeah, I don't think I'd want to see that. But what if it was dusty? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Again, you can dust it, Kelly. Just don't (laughs) move it outside. There is a story told about three hikers who visited the pub and were regaled about the curse of the skull. They didn't heed the warning about not removing the skull and stuffed it into one of their packs. They didn't get very far down the road before a ghastly apparition appeared before them holding a bloody axe and declaring, Take that skull back or I'll chop your silly heads off. You do sound like an executioner (laughs) ghost. (laughs) No, (laughs) I certainly don't. I need a scarier voice for that. They ran back to the pack horse with the ghost in hot pursuit, and they put the skull back. The spirit then said to them, You needn't have any fears. This ghost will follow you no more. You're safe now that it's got its skull back. Let this be a lesson to you. What happened to your deep executioner's (laughs) voice? Wasn't it deep enough? (laughs) (laughs) What I should do is add a little bit of reverb to it. I'll make make it it sound spooky. You needn't have any fears. This ghost will follow you no more. You're safe now that it's got its skull back. Let this be a lesson to you. Next up, we have Tunstead Farm. There are several versions of stories that go with the screaming skull that is found here. The first one is about a soldier named Ned Dixon, and he'd gone off to war. Now, he was supposed to inherit the Tunstead Farm, and he had a couple of cousins who were not happy with that. So when he came back from the war to claim his inheritance they decided that they were going to do away with him. So they murdered him and they dumped his body in a shallow grave. Paranormal activity began shortly after that, including loud noises, screaming, and even threatening physical touch. The cousins went to a local witch to see what they could do to get rid of the ghost. The witch told them that they needed to disinter Dixon's body and bring the skull into the farm. So they did that, and the haunting stopped. The skull then took on the manner of a screaming skull and was said to protect the farm and the hamlet. This protection stretched to the railroad, which threatened the farm. One accident after another befell crews, and many walked off the job, forcing the railroad to stop construction. Because the guy's last name was Dixon Kelly, they started calling this Dickie Skull. And now Dickie has been stolen a couple of times over the years, but the thieves have always brought it back because they felt the vengeance of the skull. But there are those who believe that the skull actually belonged to a female. There is another story told about the skull. Apparently, there had been two sisters that both loved the same guy. This came to a head, and one sister murdered the other. 
As a sister lay dying, she declared that her bones would never be at rest in a grave. The 1895 book, Household, Tales, and Other Traditional Remains, written by S.O. Addy, wrote of the sister, Her bones are kept in a cheese vat in the farmhouse, which stands in a staircase window. Ew. (laughs) I know, I'm like, (laughs) what? Okay. If the bones are removed from the vat, trouble comes upon the house. Strange noises are heard at night. The cattle die or are seized with illness. There are some who claim that the bones belong to a chieftain since there were many burials found on the land. Whomever the skull belongs to, the stories told about it are chilling. Once the skull was thrown into Coombs Reservoir and all of the fish died. Twice the skull was given a Christian burial at the church and chapel in Lenfrith, and both times it was dug up and returned to the farm because violent storms caused many cattle to die. The skull earned the nickname of the Weeping Skull after it was uncovered during renovations. It had been found inside a wall below a window ledge, and when it was removed from this spot, furniture started moving around the room, and a noise like weeping and moaning emanated from the skull until it was placed back in its spot. It's got all kinds of nicknames based on the fact that they really don't know who it belongs to. So it's been Dickie Skull, Weeping Skull, they just don't know. Next, we have Flag Hall. Flag Hall was owned by William Burdekin in the 18th century. One of his later family members found a skull in the house, and it was decided to give it a proper burial in Chalmorton Churchyard. The group piled into a cart, but the horse refused to go. They finally gave up, and the horse walked itself back to the stable. He was not going anywhere. (laughs) not having it. (laughs) The skull was returned to its spot in the house, and everything was fine until a new servant came along and threw the skull out of the attic window. The skull landed in a cart being pulled by a horse, and the horse reared up, throwing the skull onto the road, where it remained for a time. So much havoc erupted inside the house, though, that the skull was soon brought back in the house and put into its rightful place where it remains today. Makes you wonder, since it was apparently outside, what would happen if, like, the horse, when it was rearing up, crushed the skull? What do you do if it gets broken? Yikes. Super glue? (laughs) I I mean, I don't know. (laughs) Hope it's a puzzle you can put back together. Next, we have Chaffin Grove. Chaffin Grove had been owned by the Grove family. The property was originally named Wadden, and it was located in Dorsetshire. Miss Chaffin Grove was the last of that family at the home, so her cousin who inherited it, Troy Bullock, named it for her. For many years, this residence housed a screaming skull. The story claimed that the skull had belonged to a black slave, and the skull had a distinct mark on the skull that indicated that he had been killed by something like a sword. Apparently, the story goes that he entered his master's room one night and startled the man who thought it was a burglar, and he killed the slave by mistake. The skull was placed in a recess on the stairs and was said to cause disturbances in the house, so much so that it was eventually donated to the Dorchester Museum. What's interesting about that one is if you take the skull out of places, usually you have issues. This one was just causing issues, period. So then they take it out and apparently it was better. I'd love to know if they're having problems at the museum because of it. Next, we have the skull of Theophilus Brome. In the 1791 book, History and Antiquities of Somerset, John Collinson shared the legend of the skull of Theophilus Brome. Brome had been a royalist soldier, but he was unhappy with their activity and he defected to the Roundheads. Theophilus died in 1670. And before dying, he asked his sister to have his head removed from his body before burial, because he was afraid that the Royalist army would steal it. His body was buried in the church, and his skull was placed in a cupboard at the Higher Chilton Farm in Somerset. Over time, various tenants came through the house and removed the skull. The skull would begin to give off screams until returned to its place in the farm. As recently as 2010, the skull was seen by writer Daniel Codd, who wrote in his Mysterious Somerset in Bristol, 
Upon being shown Theophilus's skull, I was curious to see his lower jaw was missing and that he appears at some stage to have been varnished. (laughs) (laughs) I guess they wanted to preserve it pretty good there. Makes it a little easier to dust, perhaps, Kelly. Shine it on up. The reason for Theophilus Brome's desire that his head be hidden was very natural, given the era in which he died. And his tomb in the church is concealed beneath the church wall nearest the farm, meaning that his head and body were buried apart, but as near to each other as was possible under the circumstances. Next, we have Burton Agnes Hall. Burton Agnes Hall has a long history that begins in 1173, when Roger de Stuteville built the Norman Manor House. This was named Burton Agnes after his daughter, Agnes. The house has never been sold to another person. It has only passed from one family to the next when a male line has ended. The only part of this house that still remains is the lower chamber. A Welsh family by the name of Griffiths were the next family to own the hall, and this occurred in 1457. Sir Walter Griffith added the Great Hall, which is built in the Tudor Renaissance style. During the Elizabethan period, Sir George Griffith lived in the house. He received a knightship in 1532. Sir Henry Griffith would build the hall that stands today starting in 1601. This was designed by Robert Smithson, Master Mason to Queen Elizabeth I. Henry would pass the house on to his daughter Frances Griffith, who married Sir Matthew Boynton, and this would be when the Boynton family came into ownership of the hall. So as you can see, it really has kind of stayed in the same family. It just switches hands because of marriage. And this is a really gorgeous place that hosts all kinds of fabulous, wonderful things today. But as I said, the main building that's there now is more recent. There's only a small part of it that goes back to the original home that was built here. The estate of Burton Agnes continued to be inherited through the Boynton family and then into the Wickham Boynton family through marriage in 1953. Marcus Wickham Boynton was High Sheriff of Yorkshire, and he did extensive restoration to the house, particularly the Long Gallery. He collected treasures and added them to the hall. These included Chinese porcelain, rare furniture, French paintings, and the Epstein bronzes. He also added over 600 acres of land that included many gardens and an endowment to take care of the property for years to come. The hall is beautiful, and much of the 17th century carved woodwork and plaster still remain today. Going back to Sir Henry Griffiths, there's some folklore involving one of his daughters and a screaming skull. Sir Henry had three daughters. There was, of course, Frances, whom he passed the hall on to, and that's when it came into the hands of the Boynton family. And then there was Margaret and Anne. Just before the hall was completed, Anne, who was the youngest, was returning from a visit to a family in a nearby village when she was attacked by a gang of criminals and left for dead. Her family had her brought back to Burton Agnes Hall in bad shape. She had told her sisters before her death, while she slipped in and out of consciousness, that she would not rest unless a part of her remained in the house. Her sisters had agreed that if she died, they would have her head removed and kept on a table in the hall. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's a kind of weird agreement to make. Sure, we're going to cut your head off. I have a special request when I die. (laughs) Cut my head off and keep it somewhere where you guys can look at it. Now, again, this is folklore, so I I don't know. I just got a vision of of Tom from Tom and Jerry with the toothpicks holding his eyelids open. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Sorry. Great. Now, this is a bit of folklore, so I don't know that this story even took place. And they don't even know if there's a record of an Anne Griffith. So take it or leave it. (laughs) They didn't keep this agreement and had her buried in the local churchyard. Strange things soon started happening in the hall. There were loud crashes and bangs and other poltergeist activity. 
The family immediately thought about their broken promise causing the issue. They had Anne disinterred and were shocked at what they found. Her body was still relatively intact, but her head had come unattached from the body and was missing all of its flesh. Only a grinning skull remained. This skull was brought into the hall and placed on a table. Peace returned to the hall, except for in the month of October when Anne's spirit walks the queen's chamber to this day. The skull is said to be still in the hall, built into one of the old walls of the Great Hall. Yeah, so I'd be interested to know, is the skull really there? And what a weird story. Can you imagine disinterring somebody (laughs) and being like, oh, everything looks like it's doing pretty good except for what happened to her head? (laughs) She was rolling around trying to get out. The worms crawl in, the worms crawl out. They went after the nose for sure first. Great. And now we have Wardley Hall. Roger Downs was an English lawyer and politician. He was elected to the Parliament for Wigan in 1601 and acquired Wardley Hall in Manchester at the same time. He died in 1638. That's the real story. So how this man became part of ghost lore dated to 1676, we're not sure. This story paints Roger Downs as a criminal who was walking with friends one night on London Bridge. Now, of course, this could be a totally different Roger Downs. But when I went back into looking into historical stuff, this is the only Roger Downs I found was this English lawyer and politician. Interesting. Again, could be somebody with the same name. He told his friends that he wanted to attack somebody, and he did just that when the group came upon a tailor. Downs killed him. He threw the body in the Thames. Downs came upon another man who decided to fight back. This man decapitated Downs and threw his body into the Thames. The head was sent back to Wardley Hall. His sister had the head buried, and that's when the trouble started, as seems to be the case with all of these. His spirit started to haunt Wardley Hall and expressing his displeasure at being buried. Eventually, the skull was dug up and placed in a niche on the stairs. He was finally at peace, at least as long as the skull was not moved. If the skull was moved, a horrific screaming would fill the house. Not only do the dates not match, but Down's coffin was disinterred in 1799 and his entire body was inside, including his head. Huh. So maybe a little bit of urban legend mixed in there? Or perhaps another story. There is another version of the story, however, that claims that the skull belongs to Father Ambrose Barlow, who was a Catholic martyr. He was hanged, drawn, and quartered by an angry mob of Protestants who discovered him conducting a Catholic mass. The father's head was placed on display, as was the custom at the time, to serve as a warning to others. It sat on a spike in Manchester until a Catholic sympathizer removed it and took it to Wardley Hall, where it was given a special place of reverence. In 1782, Thomas Barrett wrote, From time out of mind, the occupiers of Wardley Hall have had a superstitious veneration for the skull, not permitting it to be removed from its place on the topmost step of the staircase. There is a tradition that if removed or ill-used, some uncommon screaming and lamenting is heard, and disturbances take place in many parts of the house. This has been so important that keeping the skull in its place has always been a part of the lease. And finally, we have Bettiscombe Manor. Probably the most famous screaming skull is the one found at Beniscombe Manor in Dorset. The story told about this one is most likely legend since the skull is actually thought to belong to a female, but the story's fun. Beniscombe Manor was built on an ancient land and was the ancestral home of the Piney family. This was rebuilt during Queen Anne's reign. There were richly carved wainscoting and old oak stairs left from the earlier house that was pulled down to build the new one. 
Isaiah Piney had taken part in the Monmouth Rebellion in 1685, and for this he was sentenced to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. He had some friends in high places and some money, so he was able to bribe a few people and was sent away to the Caribbean to be an indentured servant. There he worked his way into becoming a rich plantation owner on the Isle of Nevis. His descendants lived on the islands, but eventually one of them, John Frederick Piney, returned to Betascombe with the slave. This slave had a hard time with the climate in Dorset and was soon very ill. Yeah, I'd have a pretty hard time with it, too. I'm sure you would. <laughs> he told his master that his dying wish was to be returned home for burial. He said if this wish was denied, then the house would know no peace. This would be a costly wish to fulfill, and so the Pineys had him buried in a local churchyard. The broken promise would result in chaos. First, there were screams emanating from the cemetery. Unearthly screams erupted from the dark chambers of the manor next. The windows of the manor would rattle. Agricultural disaster struck as well. The Pineys, recalling that they had not kept the slave's wish, realized they needed to bring his bones to the house, and they did just that. Only the skull remains, and it sits in a niche in the chimney in the attic. People are warned not to remove it, and it is said that whoever removes the skull will die within the year. Around 1770, a farmer moved into the manor, and when he saw the skull, he said there was no way he would keep it in the house, and he threw it into a pool. Creepy noises frightened the farmer that night and the next evening. By the third night, he decided he better bring the skull back into the house. When he did that, there was peace again. The story of the skull at Bettiscombe Manor inspired writer Francis Marion Crawford to write his landmark horror story, The Screaming Skull, in 1911. This was included in a tome of his works called Wandering Ghosts and featured a story about a screaming skull that plagues a retired naval captain that had murdered the former owner of the skull. The story is told in first person by the captain as he tells a friend about what had been happening. And while this is a made-up story, the stories about the screaming skulls may be more than just folklore. There is a reason why skulls have been kept at these locations. Could it just be due to superstition? Is there really something to the curses? Do the screaming skulls haunt these locations? That is for you to decide. I thought that was a very interesting little piece of legend and lore to share with everyone. Definitely. I loved it. And perfectly creepy for October. Very well suited. We encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Kelly, remember back to when we did the Weinkauf Hotel? We drove past it when we were in Atlanta about this time last year. Certainly. And we went inside, I think, the lobby and looked around a little bit. And so then we did an episode on it. Well, one of our listeners listened to that episode more recently, and she wanted to share some pictures with me and the story to go with it. And for those of you who follow us on Instagram, you've already seen the picture that I shared. She said, Diane, I'm just now listening to the Weinkauf Hotel Fire, and it's all I can do to not cry. My mother told me the story over and over again when I was a child about how three of her high school friends that were attending the convention died in that fire. The loss of those three young women still haunted her for years. I still have her yearbooks from Albany High School where there's a memory page to them, and that's what I shared up on Instagram. Right. A few years back, I contacted the man who was writing or had written a book about the fire and sent him the info from the yearbook. I can't recall the name of the book or his name, but I'm sure you can find it online. It's good you put the disclaimer at the beginning of the podcast because the horrendous tragedy that befell those victims was just horrible. I don't doubt the hotel could be haunted. Thank you for the podcast. It really hit home with me. It was due to this that my mom never let me go on any high school trip if it meant having to stay overnight in a hotel. Knowing what had happened to her friends, I never complained about it. Thanks again, and if I can find the yearbook, I'll send you a copy. So these young women's names were Julia Hall, Marianne Shirley, it's S-C-H-E-R-L-E, and Ann Walker. 
So it's just another one of those things that brings the, that story home to you because it's like, it seemed like such a distant fire because that was way back in the, I believe the 1940s. Right. And it's like, wow, it still was affecting somebody today. Yeah, I would imagine so. She also later shared her mother's picture too. So it's oh, just nice. really neat to see these young ladies back in the 40s, the way they were dressed and how they did their hair and stuff. So thank you for sharing that with us, Kathy. And she said it'd be okay to share it with everybody else. Don't forget, we have the ghost hunt on the USS North Carolina coming up on November 21st. If you want to join us for that, please let us know as soon as possible so we can make sure we get you on that trip with us. And don't forget, we have Cemetery Bingo coming up this weekend. Woohoo! Yeah, so the winner of that will win one of the t-shirts that says, I seek dead people. I love that shirt. I do. (laughs) I love the bumper sticker I have on the car, too. If you guys want one, we have it in our Etsy shop. Just head over to our website and click on the HGB gear and it'll has a little drop down. So you'll be able to find it that way. Wasn't it our executive producer, Tammy, that came up with that? She sure did. Nice. I love her idea. And if you guys have a real ghost experience that you want to share with us for the Halloween episode, please make sure you get a hold of me in the next couple of weeks so we can make sure that you are on that episode with us or that your story is one or the other. You can either tell it yourself or write it out. want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Victoria Howard for raising your support. We're going to be moving you into a garden tomb. Thank you so much for increasing your support, and thank you for your continued support, everybody. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Perhaps. How did you get people out of perhaps? I don't know. My glasses are dirty and definitely need to clean them. Great excuse, Kelly. No, they are. I'm There's a big that. smudge on the side. I've got a thumbprint, so I can't read. <laughs> there are many rules that must be followed when it comes to the tradition surrounding these skulls. Kelly's making fun of me because I threw my hand up when I'm talking. Lots of gesturing. <laughs> hey, we're sitting in a closet. I have to make it somewhat exciting. Don't just you're too far. We're going to knock something off the wall. <laughs> the skull is believed to have belonged to a man named George Whowell. Cindy Lou Who? <laughs> Sorry. Adore. <laughs> <laughs> she collected sweets from the crash site and made her way down a river because her father had taught her that this would lead to sizzle. Sizzleization. <laughs> it's sizzling. Are they cooking barbecuing down in that <laughs> sizzleization? So much so that it was eventually donated to the Dorchester, Dorchester, Dor, Dorchester, Dorchester. 
So much so that it was eventually donated to the Dorchester Dors Nocha Nocha Dorchester Dor Dorch <laughs> Dor Darn Google pronounce Dorchester 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 Museum that claims that the skull belongs to Father Ambrose Barlow Barlow <laughs> Barlow Hey <laughs> Mister Barlow. <laughs>